You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So reaching the I generation with Genesis. Like I said, I am very glad that there are a lot of you here who are interested in this topic. Uh, we need people who are interested in this topic. Uh, like, like the introduction said, I've spent a lot of my time uh, in youth ministry, and that kind of youth ministry is half pastoring, half parenting, if you know, if any of you have been involved in that. But quite often, I have a young son, and I'm at the stage now where I find myself needing to ask um, how I do various technological things with him. And I consider myself quite sort of technologically savvy. Not if, you know, I hope no one saw the, what we had going on with the projector. But generally, I use technology a lot. But things move so fast this day and age. I'm sure you're all aware of that. Things just, technology, the revolution, just every sort of few weeks, your new phone's out of date and Apple will charge you almost £1,000 for the new upgrade and then the apps will stop working on the old one so you have to buy the new one. You all know that you all know this routine, yeah? There you go. So quite often it can feel a little like this in church. Now, there's always a big debate that I find with the senior pastors when I go and speak at churches. Are they allowed, to, are young people allowed to use the Bible on their phones? Not just young people. Um, because it's kind of frowned upon still, isn't it, in some circles? Because you, you see everyone looking at their phones. But actually, most, you know, the Bible on the phone is one of the most popular ways now to read the Bible. The Version Bible app has downloads every second. Millions upon millions of them have been downloaded. So that's just the, word, the world that we live in. But I'm glad to see a, a good mix of ages here. And obviously, I want to just spend a couple of minutes emphasizing the, uh, the need to be involved in passing information on to the next generation, because this is a biblical command. Okay, we see this over and over and over in the Bible. Let me read to you a few scriptures. Psalm 78, verse 4 to 6, it says, We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Psalm 71, So even to old age and gray hairs... O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. And one generation shall commend your works to another and they shall declare your mighty acts. You see the theme here. There are just so many verses like this that just emphasize the absolute necessity of passing on the knowledge of God. And it's, it's, it's responsibility of us to tell of the works of God, not only what he's done, but of his character, who he is, and everything to do with the glorious God that we worship. And we see this, it's not just in the Old Testament, we see a similar concept in the New Testament from 2 Timothy. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's the same sort of thing. It's emphasizing this sort of generational chain of discipleship, which really is the essence of discipleship, isn't it? Uh, this is what we see passing on uh, the faith to the next generation. You remember the lesson of Israel. Remember the Bible says whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Everything we read about concerning Israel is a lesson for us today. Remember what happened when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. Joshua led them in to the promised land. What does it say in the book of Judges chapter 2? And all that generation, that's Joshua's generation, were gathered to their fathers 
And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now notice this. One generation, and they didn't pass it on. And we're, in, we're, we're into the glory days of Joshua entering the promised land. That generation was not passed on. The knowledge of God was not passed on. A new generation arose, and we're into the period of Judges. And you remember how the book of Judges ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it's one of the worst periods of Israel's history. This is the importance of passing on the knowledge of God to the next generation. And as we're focusing on the I generation, we're going to look at some of these things today. Now, I believe we are in danger of something similar happening, something similar as to what Joshua and the children of Israel experienced in our day. And we'll talk about this as we go through. I say we're in danger of it because I'm not going to say it's happened yet because as long as the body of Christ is on this earth, we have a message to preach, there is hope always in this world. But we do need to be serious about thinking on this topic. So hopefully we'll, we'll share with you some insights that will help you to do that today. So we are talking about the I generation, more popularly known now as Generation Z. That's the more the sort of the term that seems to have stuck more than I gen. So Gen Z, but then we have, you know, we have millennials, we have Gen X, we have boomers. Yeah, it gets a little confusing, doesn't it, all of these, all of these different terms. I'm apparently in the millennial category, just. But um, uh, so uh, then you've got Gen Z after that. But let me just, there's a little chart that will hopefully explain the generational splits to you. So this is really how it goes. Sorry. Can we switch them back on? I'm going to need. It's probably easier for you to see that. Um, so here we go. So 1997, up until really 2010 or up until today, is Generation Z. That's your, if you were born in those dates. 1980 to 96, that's millennials. So I was 82, so I'm just in that category there. 65 to 79, they're known as Generation X. 46 to 64 are the boomers. And then uh, the traditionalists and the, the GI generation, as they're known. We are obviously going to be focusing on Generation Z, We'll talk a little bit about millennials as they're the connecting generation as we go through. Now, we want to just spend the first part of this talk going over some general characteristics of this generation so that we can sort of learn where their heads are at, what issues that they are facing in this world, and then we can talk about what we can do to reach this generation. There have been quite a few studies done on this recently, so I want to just pull out four or five of the characteristics of this generation. Um, one of the main studies that was done was by the Barna Group. I don't know if any of you are familiar with them. They're a big polling sort of research group. Uh, they did a massive study. This is Gen Z, uh, where a lot of this material has uh, been taken from. So the first thing that is characteristic that was mentioned in the introduction of Generation Z is that they are born connected. The term screenagers is often applied to them because most of them are in the teenage bracket now. This is the first generation that have really known nothing but unlimited Wi-Fi for their entire life. You know, so, some, I still remember dial-up. Some of you will remember dial-up and things like that. Uh, that's just, just nonsense when you try and explain that to a generation uh, Z. But they are also the first generation to be raised by parents who are on screens the whole time. So that's my generation. You know, we spare us. You know, I spend huge amounts of time on the screen. My kids grow up. Uh, you, know, you speak to any parent my age, 
they'll always tell you that the young kids, and they know how to come pick up the tablet, swipe it, and unlock it before they can do many other things. That's just, that is just the world that we live in right now. Um, so that makes them different from the millennial generation. I don't remember that when I was young in my house. It wasn't a feature with my parents. But for the younger generation, it is now today. A recent report in the UK, the I generation on average spend over 27 hours a week on the internet and over 50% of the average waking day on media or communication activity. According to Ofcom, another research that was done by Ofcom, our monitoring establishment, 11 to 15-year-olds spend six to eight hours a day consuming media. Six to eight hours a day consuming media. When uh, Youth for Christ, if, if you're familiar with that organization, they did their own internal sort of survey. They asked over 1,000 young people what activities they enjoyed uh, doing in their spare time. And the top three responses all involved consuming media, YouTube, social media, TV, and film. And to be honest, those results are pretty similar for, if you ask my generation, the results are kind of, kind of the same this day and age. They are the first generation, really, to be in this position in such a way, to be born connected and to have everything revolving around life, work, play, social life, all revolving around being connected. And in one sense, you could say that it is almost like a big social sort of experiment where people are like guinea pigs because we have no basis for knowing what this will do because we've got no test cases. So the test cases are sort of happening right now in this world as we see these things. And please don't misunderstand, I'm not against technology. I hope that's going to be clear. I use technology pretty much all through my day too. I don't see, you know, technology is kind of amoral in that sense. It depends on the user and these sorts of things. But I'm sure you all agree this is the world that we live in. However, we are seeing some worrying trends that do need to be, uh, we need to be aware of with this sort of te technological access that we have. And the first one is what, we, what is being classed as technology addiction. This is the Nightingale Hospital in London. It's one of the world's premier private mental health institutions. They, their te technology addiction programs are filled to bursting. It's one of their most uh, things that they, they do the most now, technology addiction. Uh, the NHS have just announced that they're a London hospital. They are launching the first ever NHS-funded Internet Addiction Centre. This is known as the Centre for Internet Disorders, and it's primarily for young people and adults, but for people who are addicted to technology. What we know now about how technology stimulates the brain, it works very much in the same way as drugs in some respects, and you can be addicted to it. That is just the fact, fact of the matter. And, you know, I've, I've spoken with quite a, a number of, of young people, and actually, I'm not going to say, it's all, all people, I would say, this day and age, these things are really susceptible to everyone, and there, it is a problem. The World Health Organization has just classified gaming disorder as a mental health disorder. It's a mental health condition now, being addicted to gaming. Um, how they call it, you know, quite how these things are worked out, I'm not entirely sure. But this is just the sort of world that I'm just trying to get you familiarised with the world and the culture. Terms like digital detox is something that you'll find now. Cyber bullying. Have you ever heard of that? I mean, these things, are, I mean, they're really serious, some of these things. And they are massive in our culture and in the schools and in the world that our young people live in. Another thing that has been noted from this is that there is a sharp rise in teenage depression and teenage mental health issues. 
and many studies do suggest a link between this and electronic consumption. Depression is now the third most common complaint taken to the doctor's surgery in the UK. The third most common complaint. I mean, that's a pretty serious uh, amount of people in the UK who are having this. There is now a clinical condition called nomophobia. This is an actual real term that is now being applied for people who cannot handle being away from their mobile phones. And this, again, kind of ties in with technology addiction. And, you know, it sounds foreign to many of us, but the idea of it is that because life is run around technology now, everything from probably your work, I know my work's completely done online, but technology, social life, it's all done on... So so to take that away is almost like taking away every connection that people have to the world. And that's why it causes these disorders. Now, like I say, I'm just trying to give us a feel for these things and take them quite seriously. Another problem is that uh, there is online access to anything that we want in the world. Now, recently, the British Board of Film Classification, they reported uh, a study on what teenagers are viewing online. And... It's okay, I'm just going to talk briefly about pornography. I'm not going to mention anything explicit. I'm not going to show any pictures or anything like that at all. Please don't misunderstand me. But I have to address this because it is a very, very big issue in this culture, so much so that the BBFC have done uh, a study on it. Now, for some reason, they didn't release this study to the public. I don't quite know why. But 51% of children aged 11 to 13, that's the general age when you first encounter this stuff online, 66% 66% of 14 to 15-year-olds, 79% of 16 to 17-year-olds are involved regularly with encountering this online. And perhaps one of the most shocking statistics from this study was that 75% of parents don't think it's an issue with their kids. You see the disconnect there between the generations. Now, I'm a parent. I know we all have a very rosy-eyed uh, view of our own children, don't we? No, not my kid, absolutely not. No, no, for nothing. But we can't think like that. The the way the world is now, a digital world, these things are just pressing in on people from every side. The next thing, so born connected and all the problems that that has. And let's just say it's not just problems, though. There are some huge benefits that have happened. We see sort of the entrepreneurial world, you know, businesses. People make a lot of money now doing being YouTube advertising. You know, there's huge amounts of opportunities for young people and all people with technology. So, again, it's not that I'm saying technology is bad. It's just that I'm saying this is the world that we are in right now. So the next thing is their worldview. They are generally considered to be post-Christian. Now, we apply that uh, a lot, kind of quite often in Christian circles, broadly to our culture anymore. But I want to be specific what we mean about that now. The Gen Z, so those people born, you know, late 90s to early 2000s, They were born into a context where religion in general, Christianity in particular, are really not a huge social influence in our culture anymore. Today's teenagers and 20s make up what has been called the first truly biblically illiterate nation. Gen Z is the first post-Christian generation in the sense that they have been raised by non-Christians. So the, the actual kind of falling down, if we could say that, actually happened with my generation, with the millennials in that sense. Because we're the ones that actually have kind of walked away from the church. The Gen Zs were never introduced to church in that sense now, you see. That's what this means when it says post-Christian. And, and I, actually, I actually see that as a huge opportunity. Because um, they don't carry a lot of the baggage of church. That, a lot of my age, millennials, I know a lot of guys my age who 
used to grow up in church, I don't go to church anymore. Um, and you ask them why, and usually they'll come up with a number of reasons. They've been hurt at church, the church is too divisive, the church is too hypocritical, all these sorts of things. That's church baggage, and it can have a serious effect. Gen Z generally don't have that. So in a sense, it's a very good wide open door for a, a new uh, gospel proclamation to that generation. Research published by the Barna Group, January 2018, atheism among Generation Z, those born between 1999 and 2015, is double that of the general population. So again, that's kind of a, what you'd expect if these things we're saying are true, but that is the statistics. And like I say, that actually gives me hope in some sense, because you'll find that preaching the gospel to people who have never heard it is actually sometimes easier than teaching to people who have grown apathetic. And, that, and I'd, I'd say that's a, a great opportunity. Another issue is identity. And I would say that there is not just for young people, I'd actually say there's a global identity crisis going on in our world at the moment. One third of teenagers in this research study indicated that gender is how a person feels inside and not their biological sex. And seven out of ten believe it's acceptable to be born one gender and feel like another. Now, again, we all know that this stuff is you know, out there in the culture and it's being pushed quite heavily, but this is, it's really targeted very much towards the younger generation in that sense, in a way that it never really was before. So this is something unique to that generation. We have concepts like you know, sexual fluidity, gender fluidity, all these sorts of things that are happening in our culture. And the fact that we see such high figures of people accepting this just shows that there is huge confusion uh, in this area. We'll talk about these things a little bit more as we go through and as we try and give a biblical answer to some of these issues. The next one is purpose. You see, generally, Gen Z are very concerned with security, which is a good thing, but they've obviously grown up in a post-9-11 world, you know, so they've always had all this security that we have at airports, and these sorts of things are kind of just what they've grown up with. Um, you know they're always bombarded. The media, every day you can find some sort of really quite scary thing happening if you're reading the newspaper and you're scrolling through your feeds. It can be, you know, it's no wonder it causes anxiety with these sorts of things. Uh, Gen Z said that they want, they want happiness and they want to make a difference in life. So these are, in many ways, very admirable desires. But I think the answer is they are being let down by what they're being offered. And that is really the, the key that I want to focus on for a little bit. They are being let down on what they are being offered as worldviews for this world. Now, a recent UK poll, some of you may uh, have seen this, 89% of young people believe their lives have no meaning or purpose. I think this was just the end of last year. Now, 80, that's 9 out of 10. 9 out of 10 people. Uh, that is a very concerning statistic. And very interestingly, in the same survey, they shared another statistic this first statistic is explained by a corresponding statistic shared in the same survey that said the same group of people, only 1% of them identifies as belonging to the church. Nine out of ten have no per their life has no meaning or purpose. You, you see, do you think there's a connection between the loss of the transcendent in our culture and the loss of meaning and purpose? These things, you know, unfortunately it's the consequence that men have forgotten God in that sense. Uh, just last year, I think it may have been 2018 now, moved on, haven't we? Uh, the UK's youngest lottery winner, a young lady called Jane Park, she was 17 at the time. 
Her story became famous because she subsequently sued Camelot for ruining her life. She won a couple of million, something like that. And this is what she said in one of her interviews. She says, people look at me and think, I wish I had her lifestyle. I wish I had her money. But they don't realize the extent of my stress. I have material things, but apart from that, my life is empty. What is my purpose in life? You see how these things sort of just build, build up. And this is really sad, the interview, because this is a young, you know, it's almost like she's just crying out for help to the media who are just interviewing her for the front page story. But these, you know, these are the questions that we need to take really, really seriously. And I, we can't just leave it up to anyone to sort of go and try and find out what they think is best, because you know what happens. This is pretty much what happens these days when you want to find the answer to something. My wife's a teacher, and there's a, there's a, there's a meme that whenever a student asks something that's kind of a little like, kind of like, why are you asking me? Why don't you go and find it out yourself? That my wife's a teacher. She just sends a picture back. And it just says, let me Google that for you. And that's all she sends back. So basically, like, you can find it out yourself. And we all do it, don't we? It's the expression, oh, I'll just Google it. I'll just Google it. It's the source and content of all information in the world. It has, pretty much has a monopoly on these things. Now, in many ways, it's extremely useful, Google. But when it comes to biblical things, we want to make sure that we're offering the pure, unadulterated word of God. And we have to do that now. I'm not saying you can't get access to the Bible online. Of course you can. But understand my, my point there. Now, these are just some characteristics. Being born connected, post-Christian, identity, and purpose. These are really the main defining characteristics. And I, like I said, I don't believe these are sort of doom and gloom. I believe there's much hope that the church can take in actually having an answer for these things. There are cultural battles in every generation. Okay? And we always have a tendency, don't we, to romanticize our own eras. We look back, oh, well, in my, we all do that. In my, you know, I used to moan at my parents when they did that, and now I find my, me doing it, and I can see my kids rolling their eyes at me, and it's just sort of a, a natural thing. But these, some of these things are quite serious, so we do need to take them very seriously. Although these battles kind of change with the generation, people are still people. We're still humans made in the image of God, and every generation has different battles, but we also have the same battles in many ways. We're struggling for hope, for purpose, for meaning. We're dealing with the effects of a broken and sinful world and how they encroach on our lives, and these things do not change. They've been there since the Garden of Eden, and they're going to be there until Christ returns in that sense. And again, what they need is the message that we have we are proclaimers of the gospel. We are ambassadors for the gospel. And this is the message that we have. And we're going to talk about this as it relates to the book of Genesis as we move into the second uh, half of this talk. And uh, to be honest with you, in my experience, having done quite, quite a bit of youth ministry, some of the godliest and most on-fire Christians that I've met have been from Generation Z. So when they understand, they really get it. And, and they put a lot of, a lot of us to shame. And, you know, a lot of the discipleship, they have a hunger for knowledge, they have a hunger to do good, to actually live out the commandments of Christ, a hunger to understand Christ. So, in spite of all of this, and I've seen them use technology for great benefit with their friends in the, for the gospel. So, this, you know, the opportunity to pour into the next generation, and then they go and reach their own generation. You see, so this is how, so we're, you know, if you have young people in your church, you are born again and are saved, you know, invest in them heavily because they're the ones, they understand the technological world, they just need to have a framework, a biblical worldview, that's what we're going to talk about, so that they can explain the world to their peers. 
and they will have huge amounts of effect. You know, we, we had a, a, young, a young guy who came to the faith through street witnessing. Uh, he, was, I think he was 17 at the time. And uh, we, did, I did a lot, we did a lot of discipleship with him. We did a lot of apologetics. And you know, he used to go to the gym pretty much every week. He'd bring someone from the gym to church. That's something that we couldn't have done. If I went to the gym and tried to bring a 17-year-old to church, invited him somewhere, I'd probably be kicked out of the gym. That's just kind of, how it, kind of how it goes. So they have this window into the world. And, you know, we mustn't underestimate that. It can be very, very powerful. And that's one of the things why you see these verses in the Bible, tell the works of God to the next generation, pass it on to the next generation. It's so, so important. So let's talk a little bit about what is called the youth exodus from church. You've probably, if you're familiar in the Christian world, you've probably heard these sorts of topics mentioned. There are many, many surveys um, some parts of the church are in panic. Why are there no young people? Let's do a survey on it. So uh, Evangelical Alliance, UK have done one. Church of England have done one. Youth for Christ, Barna Research, Pew Research. They've all done one on the, the, the fact that young people are you know, leaving church. Now, you've got to be a little bit careful with surveys um, in the sense that data is you know, it's quite one-dimensional in some respects. They don't uh, account for the fact that quite often a lot of these people came back after their teenage years to church, and all these different factors. But the general consensus is there is quite a problem with bleeding young people from the church. So having sort of read most of these surveys, I'm going to give you just a selection here of some of the reasons that were given by the young people in the survey for why uh, this was happening. One of the reasons was that the church is too isolationist. What they meant by that is that the church demonizes everything outside of the church, including the music, the movies, the culture, technology, and everything that defines their generation. And, you know, I want us to learn from this. Whilst we never want to turn a blind eye to things that are not harmful, if we are merely trying to put uh, things on young people because that's what we're used to in our generation, we're not going to be communicating with the younger generation. Okay, so we have to be very careful of things like that. Anti-science. There's another one there. Um, sorry, I missed one. Shallowness. This was generally, what they meant by that was that the church is generally quite boring. Faith is, they don't see why faith is relevant to everyday life. And this is a really big problem. I find this one actually one of the most troubling ones here. What this means is that we have not connected the stories that we were trying to teach them in Sunday school and in church to the real world. And this is one area where the biblical creationist worldview, the fact that the, world, you know, the history of the Bible can be trusted, is a huge, huge benefit to this sort of uh, ministry. So that, that's an area. Anti-science, fairly self-explanatory. The general consensus was that there was lack of any scientific evidence for the claims of the Bible. In fact, actually, they, they would say that the Bible was going against modern science. And obviously, this would seem to be right in the sort of creation-evolution debate. Sex. The church is perceived as simplistic, judgmental, homophobic, and repressive, were some terms from the, the statements here. And again, in the sort of tolerant age of Gen Z and, and all the sort of sexual propaganda that is pushed at them, these things are understandable. Too exclusive. And again, the church is considered too exclusive in a pluralistic and multicultural age. You can see why that sort of happens. And again, I'm saying these things because there's probably some truth in some of these things, with the way that young people have experienced church. Um, so we need to be very careful. What is biblical? Where, where do we draw the line? And what is us just putting our own likes and dislikes or generational norms onto another generation? 
this is, this is the sort of thing. And obviously the last one was questions. Most young people felt that church was not a safe place to have doubts, have questions about things like evolution, about pornography, about depression, LGBT issues. All of these things were given as the main questions. And what does this tell you? Young people want the church to be addressing these issues. If we stick our heads in the sand and we ignore them, they're going to go elsewhere for answers and they're going to go from someone who doesn't have the revealed word of God and they're going to get what the world tells them. We need to take these questions so, so seriously. They're good because some of the best times I've had in youth group and in discipleship is when you just listen to their questions and discuss them. Even if you don't, you know, no one has all the answers. You get hard questions, you can't answer everything. But they've got to feel like there's a place where they can ask these questions and that place should be with, with us, <laughs> with, the, with the church, in the, with the older generation, where we can uh, sort of be involved in helping to understand and learn these things. It's such an important process. And again, for me, it's just, that is part of discipleship. That is what we should all be actively uh, involved in. Now, the Barna Research Group, again, one of them, they did one of the major surveys. Sorry. When they were asked, they're, they're, they were asked uh, non-Christian young people, what were the greatest barriers to accepting the Christian faith? And these were the two top answers. Science refutes too much of the Bible and a refusal to believe in fairy tales. You can sort of see the, the connection. You can sort of see the mindset, how that's working. And this is, again, another reason why the church needs to be providing good answers to these sorts of questions. I'm all for expositional preaching from the front. I'm all for those sorts of things. I would never deny that for one second. But we need to be doing apologetics too. We need a biblical worldview apologetics, and it's absolutely vital to answering the questions of a generation. And I would say in particular creation apologetics is one of the foundational parts that we should be doing in this. A few years back, Creation Ministries uh, produced their own documentary called Fallout. And it was basically interviewing university students on campus so that you could get in their own words why they either left the church and these sorts of things. The answers were very revealing. This is a quote from Fallout. Uh, it says, Our interviews show unequivocally that the majority of young people who were not exposed to creation teaching in their youth now embrace evolution and no longer attend church. That's a, quite a statement, if you think about that. Yet every student we spoke to who was equipped with answers as a young person still retains their Christian convictions in spite of evolutionary teaching they received at higher education. And then it goes on, better still, every single student we spoke to who affirmed biblical, biblical creation still attends church regularly. You see the connection here. You see where I'm going with all this sort of stuff. The response of the church to much of this sort of cultural crisis, as it's been called, and I say this, like I say, I've been involved in youth ministry, I've seen this all over the place. The response usually is to entertain as a way to attract. More games, more lighthearted things, more trips out. And again, I've done those things many times. I'm not against any of those things. There's an absolute place for those sorts of things. However, I've also noticed along with that, an aversion to covering tough topics, to speaking about creation, um, because it might cause some division, or it might, for whatever reason that is, that is what I've, seen, I, I've experienced in the church. Now, the problem is, if you're going to attract young people with entertainment, you have to keep them with entertainment. It only attracts, it doesn't retain. Because I think we do young people a disservice 
and we assume all they want is entertainment, when surveys actually show what they want is proper answers and to be taken seriously with their questions. And that is how you, you meet these people, when they have a firm foundation in biblical understanding and the worldview based on the word of God, even when they're encountering other worldviews in the wider world, they still stood strong on the Bible. And that is really the lesson that I want us to take from this. And I would say, we kind of scramble about seeking for ways to be relevant. I've seen just so many things in these last few years. You know, cathedrals putting helter-skelters in the middle of their sanctuaries and turning the aisles into mini golf courses. You know, I don't know what to say about that. You can do whatever you want to be relevant, but that's not what the church is called to do. We are called to be a unique people, set apart, and the message we have is absolutely unique. And I believe it is the best message that we can offer young people in the world, the only one that they need to hear, and it starts in the book of Genesis. So whilst we can scramble around looking for ways to be relevant, Genesis has always been relevant. And I would say as this cultural crisis sort of takes root in the generation, Genesis is even more relevant to these questions. And let's look at a few ways that it can be now. You see, Genesis is the foundation for, pretty, for all Christian doctrine. It is the seedbed of the Bible. That's why it's called Genesis, be it beginnings. And most of what you study in a systematic theology class or what you study in the New Testament has its roots back in Genesis. You can see here, so you have Genesis at the bottom. You have God, theology of God, obviously God as the creator in that sense in the, in the first verse. You have the origin of man, the origin of gender, the origin of sin, the origin of the fall, marriage, origin of sacrifice, and the promise of redemption. All of these things come from Genesis. And this is the thing. If you're going to be sort of play fast and loose with the book of Genesis, you're severing the rest of the Bible from Genesis. And what that means is that when we're trying to explain the, the story of the Bible to young people, who, who, you know, story is a very powerful way to tell the Bible, it's, it's disconnected. That's why those survey results show so many young people feel like church is irrelevant. They don't see how it connects to their real life, the, the things that they are doing day to day. And I, that's not just young people. I, you know, that happens to all of us. If we're busy, you're working, you're doing this sort of stuff, churches for Sunday and for midweeks, that's not going to cut it with these sorts of things. The only way to counteract that is to have a worldview that takes account of all areas of life. Biology, physics, chemistry, sociology, all, all of these things are rooted in the word of God. You see, if we want to reach young people, we have to answer the big questions of life, and we need to help them see that the Bible's history is true, and this begins in the book of Genesis. And one of the things we need to address first is to help them to, to understand the difference between facts and interpretation. Okay, facts and interpretation. You see, the term science is often sort of given a, you probably know, you know a sort of salvific authority in, in this day and age. You know, the scientists say, and it's taken as if I can use the term gospel truth. And you know, that, that is a problem. Um, because in the culture, it is the evolutionists who kind of have a monopoly, or they act like they have a monopoly on science. And this is a problem. I would say that the word science has kind of morphed its meaning a little bit. The word has been redefined. People don't mean the same thing as people like Isaac Newton when they used the term science as an investigation. You know, this is what has happened. This is my experience speaking with young people, and you'll see this in the culture all the time. Science has been subtly redefined. 
when people say science in the culture, when young people are learning about it, and when it's presented through the media, <clears throat> what they really mean is naturalism. And this is the view that the physical, the material, is all that there is. And naturally, when you have naturalism, you have no supernatural. And if it's understood in this way, you see what happens. If science... When people say science, they hear naturalism, or they think or are conditioned to sort of apply naturalism to that term, then what does that mean? No miracles and no God. You've already ruled out the biblical worldview from the discussion simply by the definition of the term science. And I find this being, being done all the time, and it's a trick, it's a game, it's wordplay, but it's, it is where the culture has sort of gone. That is not how the early pioneers of science understood it. That is not what the scientific revolution that was really formed in the Western world based on the biblical uh, Judeo worldview. That's not how they thought of science. Science should be free to follow the evidence wherever it leads, whether it's to a natural or a supernatural cause. But this definition has removed supernatural. So this is why sometimes I believe you get these surveys, the ones I read to you, that the Bible is considered anti-science because it has a miracle in it. Therefore, that's, that's outside of the natural. That's anti-science. And you see how the game is played. And that's kind of where we go with that. Stephen Jay Gould, leading evolutionary uh, paleontologist. He said this, and this is coming you know, from the horse's mouth. He says, facts do not speak for themselves. They are read in light of theory. Science is not a mechanized robot-like accumulation of objective information, leading by laws of logic to inescapable interpretation. What he's basically saying there is, you know, it's not neutral, as it's quite often presented. It's just science, it's just facts. No, no, scientists are the ones who tell us about the facts, and scientists very much operate from within a worldview. It's a worldview issue, and their worldview is more often than not naturalism. And you see, again, how the game is played. And this is what often we find being taught to our young peoples in university, and naturalism, obviously, this is why we see eight, nine out of ten people, I believe, mean, having no meaning or purpose to their life. All of these things are connected. Let me just give you one example of this. If you see in a textbook or something like a, a picture of the geologic column, the fossil record, an evolutionist looking at this, i.e., what you know, the observable part of it, the observable fact, he will see it as a, or interpret it as a record of evolutionary history of life from a universal common ancestor over billions of years. Now you see, however, a creationist interpreting the very same facts sees it largely representing a vast sequence of rapid burial by a complex cataclysmic event, i.e. the global flood. These are both valid. Well, these are both interpretations that are offered. The problem is most people are only ever exposed to one. They don't even know the other option is available to them. Now, you can evaluate these models by considering the problems that arise with them, uh, whether there are any observable facts that cannot be consistently interpreted. I would say, just to follow up on this one I've got here, polystrate fossils. You have fossils coming through multiple layers of rock that were supposedly laid down over millions of years, but yet you can have one single tree going through all these layers. That's a problem. <laughs> Another one is uh, out-of-sequence fossils. Uh, this is, you know, to the surprise of many, things like ducks and squirrels and platypuses, badgers, badger-like creatures anyway, have all been found in what are known as dinosaur-era rock, according to the geologic common column except they shouldn't exist in that era. And then, you know, I know that there are explanations that they come up with this, but it gets to a point when you, if you keep having to come up with rescuing devices, that you get to a point where you're saying, hang on, is this worldview 
cut out to explain the totality of reality as we know it. I don't believe it is. I believe the biblical worldview does a much better job at that. So we have to help young people realize the power of the biblical creation viewpoint, that it provides both a logically consistent and valid explanation of the world around us. It's not just something we, we learn about on Sunday morning, about the stories that Jesus did and these sorts of things. As you know, vital as they are to the whole story, we have to connect it to the real world for them because this is one of the problems, as you notice from those survey results, it's not being connected to the real world for them. Gen Genesis, I believe, has the answers for this. Gen Z are searching for answers. Naturalism is generally what they are being offered, and I believe this plays into why we see so many in this sort of existential crisis. What does naturalism actually say? Bill Provine, leading, leading biologist, there is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, no free will for humans either. Very famous and honest statement by a leading evolutionist. No ultimate meaning to life. Again, we're up to 9 out of 10. Okay, So this, these are serious issues. Now, rather than the naturalist worldview, we have the biblical worldview. And it starts with the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, this stands as a refutation to all the naturalistic theories of existence. All of them. Because if God exists, then everything changes in that sense. If God created, and there is good supporting arguments we can, we can go into for that, this loudly proclaims that there is a purpose behind the universe. You see, this answers the questions, where do we come from? Why do we exist? This is the antidote to the cold, meaningless universe that is being presented to so many of our young people that doesn't have a reason for the meaning in their lives. It is from the book of Genesis. Another big issue in all of these surveys was to do with image, identity, and self-worth. Um, you know, They call it the selfie generation. It's a fiercely competitive online world to form an identity through the online media that we have. And again, everyone does this. It's, you know, all your different profiles. It's very competitive. It's very brutal on there. I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, some of the, you know, the internet is not a nice place in many ways. Um, people seem to lose all manners when you start talking with people on the internet. Because there's no accountability in that sense. But that is the world. Again, that is the world we live in. And most people don't really know where to search. You know, do you get your identity from your community? Do you get it from your job? Do you get it from your orientation? There's so many different things that are offered. But we have to be clear. We get it from this. This is the best identity we can ever have. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. There's so much just in this one verse. You see, firstly, man was created. It says in Genesis 2, 7, doesn't it, that God personally breathed into the nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. This tells us that man is not the end product of evolution. Man is not descended from sort of a, a lower hominoid-type creature, as theistic evolutionists teach. Mankind is a unique creation of God, the special object of his love, in fact. So each individual human life is inherently valuable, invested with dignity and worth that comes from the highest possible source imaginable, God himself. This is what it means to be created in the image of God. And I can tell you from experience, when you explain this to someone who has never heard it before, 
and has, has failed, basically, to carve out their own identity in this world due to difficult circumstances or whatever, it is transforming. And you have their ear, and you can explain the rest of the story. <laughs> and this is the sort of the power of these sorts of concepts. Again, it stands in very stark contrast to what the evolutionary worldview tells people. Jerry Coyne, again, very famous character, he says, there is no special purpose for your life, no more extrinsic purpose than a squirrel, a squirrel or an armadillo. You know, what, what is that message? And you, you, we, you know, you see why we have these sorts of problems. Um, now, I know they think they're being honest. That's fair enough. But we need to challenge this. You know, destroying arguments that are raised up against the knowledge of God, Second Corinthians. Now, identity... Again, like I said, it's a massive issue in this world, not just young people. All people are affected by identity crisis. The foundations of the West have kind of been moving away from the biblical foundations, and as we do that, we will see more confusion. And we know that God is not the author of confusion. So if you move away from God's word, of course you're going to see confusion. Now, the way that sort of gender has now been expressed is that it is a fluid concept, social construct, and you can really choose and decide yourself. This is played out in some very unusual ways in the courts. Um, I won't go into all those things now. But just for an example, Facebook now offers account holders the choice of over 50 different gender options. You can see a few of them there on the screen, and it just kind of goes on and on and on. Um, I've sat with young people, and we've, we've talked about them as going through them. And I've never met even, even someone who's, you know, down, you know, knows everything about the culture. I've never met anyone who can really explain more than 10 of them. Um, so, I mean, who, who really knows what, what a lot of them are? But this is, again, I'm not making light of it. I'm, you know, I do think it's quite serious, but this is where we are. Uh, you'll see things like this. This was a very recent one. You might have noticed the celebratory trend in proclaiming that you're going to raise your child gender neutral. And you get a nice headline and all this sorts of stuff, and everyone assumes you're you know, towing the cultural line, except for the fact that uh, it just goes against... I'd love to see how that actually plays out in the household behind closed doors. That, that, that would be my concern with that, because it doesn't really work from that very first sonogram that you have in the nurse's office. Generally, sex, but again, this is why sex and gender have been separated in that sense. But we need to sort of start unravelling this confusion and again, I believe it comes straight back to the Bible in the book of Genesis. And not just Genesis, the very first chapter of Genesis. It's almost as if God knew where some of these problems were going to, were going to be in our culture 2,000, well, 4,000, 5,000 years later. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, we know this is taken very seriously. We see Jesus Christ, in fact, referencing this in the New Testament. Matthew 19, in his discussion about divorce and marriage, he says, Have you not heard, have you not read, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Our gender is a scientific reality as well as a sacred gift from God. And it is something that should be celebrated rather than t torn down. Now, I'm also aware that we live in a fallen world. We'll talk about that. And there are, you know, it's, not, it's easy to say, 
But if you've ever sat and met and talked with someone who is struggling with this disease, you know it's a very, very emotional, hard concept. I've done that myself. And it is, you know, it moves you to tears to see the struggles in some ways. However, the word of God, I believe, is still the answer, as opposed to the confusion that comes from the culture. This means that men and women are equal in value and worth, but we are not identical. But we both have the privilege of being representing the image of God in that sense. There is a complementary design inherent in the sexes, which is to be celebrated, proclaimed, and I believe ultimately that will is the antidote to the confusion that we see. And again, it's, for me, it's all connected with moving away from the Bible. And in the church, I believe it is connected with disconnecting the rest of the Bible from the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Okay, you'll see that those two things always seem to go together. But this answers the question of who we are. And this is a very important part of the picture. Now let's just look at the last one that I've got really here for you now. And this is the issue of suffering. Because this is still one of the biggest objections to the Christian faith. If you've ever witnessed or shared your faith, it's one of those questions that you almost hope you don't get sometimes. How could so-and-so let this happen, or let some terrible situation? And for us as Christians, sometimes it's very hard to explain. It's emotionally taxing. We've probably all experienced you know, loss in life and things that cause us, move us to tears. Suffering is a huge issue. Now, one of the things that the surveys kept saying about Generation Z is that they really do honestly have a heart that wants to help and do good. They see the injustice in the world. Now, they are fearful. That's another thing the surveys all said. Because of the constant stream of atrocities and danger and terror, that is just continuing. The news cycle moves on a daily basis. You know, things that would have been national crises are dealt with in one day and kind of moved on and then the move moves on. And that just sort of just feeds the sort of, uh, you know, I experience it too, you know, because I, I monitor a lot of these things. Sometimes I just have to stop, step back, and just t- take a break from all these sorts of things. But that is, that is, again, that's the world that we live in. But many people cry out for justice. They're wondering why things are like this. How can this sort of stuff in the world happen? And once again, I believe naturalism falls short. The worldview of evolutionists is really unable to even account for moral categories and impulses, and it definitely offers no resolution to how to fix the world. You know, the world just is. Dance with your DNA, so to speak, to, to paraphrase Dawkins. Those sorts of things. And I would say that Genesis here, again, has the answer. It's part of the biblical worldview. We call it the fall of man. And it comes from Genesis chapter 3. You remember the narrative, the history. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Their rebellion brought sin And Satan's deceptive rule into this world, it caused the fellowship with God to be broken and the created order to be cursed. The Bible and the biblical worldview explains the origin of sin, of death, and all the associated suffering and evil that came into the world along with it. But the biblical worldview not only has the explanation for why the world is like this, it also offers the resolution to how to fix this world or ultimately what will happen to this world. And it is a very important part of our message but as you can see it's very much connected to the first part of the message and the two again have to be connected the bible explains suffering you see the world was never intended in that sense to be like that it was proclaimed very good when god first created it and it was the entrance of disobedience and rebellion that caused the world to be like this it answers the if question if god exists why is there so much suffering the root of that answer is the fool. Now, I, I know I 
we could do a whole talk on uh, kind of fleshing that out. But Genesis tells the origin of sin and death at Satan's instigation, and it also speaks of God's solution with the promise of a coming Savior who will taste death for all men and wants to redeem us from death. In Genesis, he's referred to as the seed of the woman. Again, we find the first hint of this wonderful doctrine in the book of Genesis. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Known as the proto-evangelism in theological circles. The first hint of the gospel, that this promised one. And the promised redeemer is then the entire narrative of the rest of the Bible in that sense. Promised here in the first three chapters of the book and then we see it progressively unfolding throughout the rest of Revelation. And it's only ultimately, it's the great story, it's the story that we are proclaimed to tell. And it is only ultimately in the life, death, and resurrection of this seed, of this promised Redeemer, that we see the ultimate solutions to evil, death, and suffering. It's why he can promise at the end of the book that when he is defeated, death, raised again, he can promise there'll be no more death, tears, or suffering in the world to come. And he's the only one who has the authority to make that promise. Okay, and everything that we go through, when we're teaching about biology and history and fossils, we must have that in sight, because that's what we're defending and proclaiming. The two are very much connected, and I think the church needs to really put our thinking hats on of how we can try and connect those things for young people. Ultimately, it's the, that is you know, the greatest message of all. 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam, historical, all die, so also in Christ, will be made alive. And it's, you know, in the cross, 2,000 years, that's history. Adam, that's history. Biblical worldview is rooted in the real history of the world. It's not just some sort of metaphysical religious idea. It's not some sort of spiritual concept. It's much more than that. It's, it's, you know, Jesus Christ entered into history and his fingerprints are all over it in that sense. And sometimes we need a little help to connect the dots where maybe we've dropped the ball on some areas. And this is part of, I believe, what... Generation Z need us to do because they don't have the church baggage and background and, and I have found in my experience when you take the time to do this it's a wonderful you know it's one of the most rewarding experiences in youth ministry explaining the biblical worldview starting with Genesis I believe is the best way to go about engaging young people and helping them properly understand the world around them it's not about just telling them what you believe as a Christian this is the mistake we make the Bible says this this is it now, don't get me wrong, biblical authority is absolute, I would say. But when you're trying to speak with someone, to, you want to help them have the worldview, the framework of understanding, so that they can interpret the world around them and give them the tools to empower them to do it. That's the point. Because like, at some point, they're going to get to an age where they don't necessarily trust what their parents say. Or they'll encounter someone who will tell them something different, and then, the, then their world will be thrown into, oh, I was never told about that. Don't be scared of, of you know, talking about these topics with young people. Now, like I said, this is the greatest message of all, and what CMI is about is proclaiming this message in all these different ways, and to do that, that's all I'm going to share with you tonight. We've we've gone on for time. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.